You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual Trump's ban on trans people serving in the military. Biden canceled it, lifted it. It's over as of yesterday. Done. Biden also took us back into the Paris Climate Accords last week, and we're back in the World Health Organization. The Muslim travel ban, that racist, xenophobic shit, canceled. The Keystone Pipeline project that threatened sacred lands and water supplies for native tribes in the Dakotas, permission denied, project scrapped. Along with more than 100 regulations Trump issued that made it easier for industry to pollute our water and air. Oh, and no more permits to drill for oil or natural gas in our national parks or monuments. Stricter fuel efficiency standards for cars? They're back, baby. Food stamp programs? Expanded. Discrimination in the workplace based on sexual orientation or gender identity? Banned. Construction of the border wall? Halted. Dreamers? Undocumented immigrants who were brought to the USA as children? Some of our fellow Americans? They are not going to be deported. All people living in the U.S., including non-U.S. citizens, will be counted in the 2020 U.S. Census. So Republican efforts to rig the census in order to further rig Congress? Canceled. Collective bargaining rights for unionized federal employees? Restored. Hack Trump appointees that were turning the Voice of America news service into a Trump propaganda outfit? Fired. Anthony Fauci unleashed masks now required in airports and on planes and train stations and on trains and on buses. A policy that would have saved tens of thousands of American lives had it been put in place back in March. Those lives are lost, but this order will save lives going forward. National moratorium and evictions extended until April. Student loans, you don't have to pay them and no interest will accrue through September 30th. And that is just a partial list of everything the Biden administration has done in less than a week. I rattle this list off because, well, because there are, amazingly, still people out there who insist there's no difference between Democrats and Republicans and no reason to be excited about a Democrat or a Democrat like Joe Biden being in the White House. A lot of those people describe themselves as progressives. I like to think that I am a progressive. I certainly know progress when I see it. And I've seen a lot of progress in the last week. I have seen, we have all seen the difference between Republicans and Democrats, and it is stark. I'm also, and no shade to actual chronological kids here, I'm also a grown-up, and grown-ups know that all progress is incremental. That's a dirty word for some that's a pejorative, incremental steps, incrementalism, often condemned. But perfection, utopia, Not an option. There's no great leap forward that's going to bring us to a perfect society, which means all progress is incremental. It's just some increments are bigger than others. Full disclosure, I'm a size queen when it comes to increments. I mean, I love me a big old sweaty increment. For instance, I would love to have socialized medicine here in the United States, Medicare for all. I'm a fan, but we're not going to get it. Not all at once. But we may get, if Dems in Congress get their shit together and kill the filibuster, a public option added to Obamacare. That is going to be one great big old sweaty increment that's going to move us a huge step closer to actually achieving Medicare for all. And that's progress, incremental progress. And I'll take it because I am a progressive. We aren't going to get everything we want. 
And we're going to have to fight to get a lot of what we want out of the Biden White House. I've been watching Democratic and Republican administrations come and go for a long time. During Republican administrations, we have to fight to stop things we don't want. And during Democratic administrations, we have to fight to get the things we do want. So you want the Biden administration to cancel student debt instead of suspending it? Great. I do too. Make some fucking noise like the gays did in 2009 and 2010. Noise that prompted Obama to actually move on scrapping Don't Ask, Don't Tell, the ban on gays, lesbians, and bisexuals serving openly in the military. Obama and the gays, it's a love fest now. It wasn't then. We were pissed. He heard from us. We screamed. We yelled. And he came through and progress was made. So something you want Biden to do, make noise that every once in a while, take a moment to appreciate the progress that's already been made because it's important to celebrate our wins and it makes us hungry for more. All right, coming up on today's show, we brought back Dr. Jen Gunter to address the flood of responses we got about recurrent UTIs. That's on both the micro and the magnum Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com. Also on the magnum, I had a conversation with a woman who was sick of dating broke-ass dudes but didn't want to look like a gold digger either. All that coming up on today's show. Hi, Dan. I'm a trans woman living in the mid-Atlantic. And I'm calling in for a sex success story. So amazingly, I had my gender confirmation surgery in early December. And I transitioned 15, 15, 18 years ago. So, you know, it was a long time before I did that, that step. Anyhow, you know, I've come back home. I'm here in my house and my life basically revolves around dilating, which is four times a day for 30 minutes a day. And it's been rather medical for quite some time, meaning the experience is not sexual. You know, there's a lot going on down there. It's not actually cute yet or anything like that. But this past week, it just started changing like things are settling in and it's like my body is all kind of coming together and connecting and the mental and the physical is all aligning and it's amazing and beautiful. And I was dilating yesterday and it's just been building up every afternoon in my afternoon session and it just started happening. I got so aroused starting to play with the clitoris, you know, I'm still afraid to like really dive in there because I'm afraid I'm going to damage something, but it just all started happening. I don't even know what was stimulated, how it was stimulated, whatever. It just happened all throughout my body and it was fucking amazing. And I just want to share that for all of the trans people out there right now, like mm, this insane fucked up world we're living in and how heavy it is that I had this fucking amazing experience yesterday with my trans body and all of us are entitled to that and deserve that. And I'm just so fucking grateful for it today and grateful for this show. Thanks, Dan. Wow. That sounds so amazing. I am tempted, half tempted to go out and get bottom surgery myself. Seriously, caller, thank you so much 
for sharing. I'm sure your success stories can help other trans women who've gotten bottom surgery or are thinking about it. We like to start each week's show with a listener success story, something that's working for you before we get to what isn't working for our callers. It doesn't have to be pandemic-related. So if something's working for you that you want to share, phone or email it in, and we might start next week's show with your success story. Hey, Dan and Sari. I have a big problem. I'm a trans woman, and I guess I recently got hot because one of my male best friends spent the better part of a night hitting on me and making me feel super uncomfortable. We ended up talking about it in a roundabout way, but what ended up rearing its head was that he and some of my other guy friends, the ones I had before my transition, really have a patriarchal view of women. They obviously feel women, and that includes me, are inherently inferior. I don't want to lose these relationships, and I don't want them to change either. I should mention that one of the guys even slut-shamed me for posting bikini shots on Instagram. These friendships are extremely important to me, but I don't want to be a second-class citizen in them either. What a great group of friends you have there, of straight male friends you have there, who affirm your gender identity by hitting on you at parties and making you feel uncomfortable, by communicating to you that they see you as a woman as inferior to them, as men who slut-shame you? Yeah. Welcome to being a woman. Welcome to being a woman in a world full of shitty men. But you know what? Shitty men are everywhere, unfortunately, but they are opt-in. They don't get to be your friends or lovers. Rather than figuring out how to navigate these relationships and make them work, you should be ending these friendships. You should be burning these patriarchal bridges. You should be burning these guys and you should be blowing up at them and telling them to go fuck themselves that you will post whatever pictures to Instagram you like to post. And they shouldn't be slut shaming you or anyone else, particularly if they want to live in a world where they get laid more often. They might not want to slut shame anyone, any woman for anything. And that you have no desire to fuck with guys who are misogynistic assholes. Yeah, end these relationships. I don't understand why. I know I'm being snarky about them affirming your gender identity, but in a really weird way they are. But in the affirming that they've done of your gender identity, they have demonstrated to you, they've outed themselves to you as guys who don't get to be your lovers or friends anymore and probably shouldn't have been your friends before you transitioned. They were shitty, misogynistic dudes back before you transitioned. They are still shitty, misogynistic dudes now that you've transitioned, maybe losing you as a friend will open their eyes to the price that they're going to pay going forward by being shitty, misogynistic, slut-shaming dudes. But even if it doesn't, at least they're out of your life. And you can focus on making better friends, less patriarchal, misogynistic friends, and finding guys to hang with, guys to fuck with, who don't slut-shame you or make you feel uncomfortable. Which is not to say that any guy who ever makes you uncomfortable in this way by hitting on you when you're not interested in them has to be exiled from your life or is a bad guy. If somebody hits on you in a way that makes you feel afraid for your safety, probably a bad guy. If somebody hits on you and you aren't interested in them in the same way and they don't take no for an answer, if they keep hitting on you after you've made it clear that you're not interested in them. Okay. That's a bad guy. That guy should be exiled from your life. But you know, whenever someone takes the risk of making that pass of asking somebody out of, of hitting on someone, hopefully using their words, not lunging 
at someone, there's a chance they may have seen something as evidence of mutual interest that wasn't evidence of mutual interest because of dickful or twatful thinking. So I don't want to endorse the idea that anybody who ever hits on you and makes you the least bit uncomfortable has to be thrown out of your life, has to be exiled, and is a terrible person. It's what happens after that person hits on you, makes you uncomfortable. You've made it clear that you're uncomfortable, clear that you're not interested. How they behave after that is what determines whether they have to be exiled from your life or if they're a shitty person. They hit on you in a way that makes you feel unsafe, shitty person. If they hit on you and then don't take no for an answer and keep hitting on you, shitty person. They hit on you and the answer is no and you're made to feel uncomfortable and they're going to certainly feel uncomfortable when you reject them and they take that in and they cease hitting on you. Maybe not a bad person. Maybe the kind of person we want to see more of in the world, the kind of person who listens. Hi, Dan. This is a response called to your advice to the woman with a six-month-old and a two-year-old who want to know if she should feel any guilt for having zero sex of any kind with her husband. Uh, periodically you get calls like this and you always say it's fine and normal. Well, Dan, usually you give great hetero advice, but in these situations, I think you have a serious blind spot as a gay man with one child. If Terry refused to touch your dick for six months to a year, would that be okay with you? Keeping in mind, nobody else could touch it either. Imagine if you had three kids and what happened with this woman happened three times, so maybe three years with nobody touching your dick. Would that be okay? Would that be normal and fine? Would you understand? If you want monogamy, don't you think you have some obligation to try to be there for your partner sexually? You should have suggested perhaps that this woman consider giving her husband a hand job, which is nothing more than a massage for his dick. It's not so much what I would put up with, but being consciously aware going in for what I signed up for. If you're going to have a child, if you're going to scramble your DNA together the old-fashioned way and make a baby, guys, you have to know the first six months or year after the baby arrives, your sex life is probably going to be in the toilet and you need to steal yourself for that and not succumb to the kind of resentment or pressuring that is going to poison the well, that it's going to make it impossible for your sex life to pick back up again after the breastfeeding is done, after your wife or girlfriend is fully recovered from the trauma of childbirth, from making a baby with you, which if it wasn't a surprise baby, you wanted to do too. You wanted to have the baby too. You signed up for not just having the baby, not just getting up in the middle of the night, sometimes yourself, not just doing hopefully 50% or more of a lot of the housework immediately after the baby arrives, but going without a little bit. I do think your suggestion is perfectly reasonable. You keep saying, you know, what if somebody didn't touch your dick for a year? What if Terry didn't touch your dick for a year? But a lot of guys who call in and complain about their wives not wanting to have sex three minutes after the first or second child was born are complaining about vaginal intercourse not being on the table, are complaining about the kind of long, intimate, drawn-out, touchy, feely sex that they previously enjoyed not being something that their wife, who's sort of touched out and emotionally and physically exhausted after caring for an infant, is up for. And they're unwilling, many of these guys to settle for just having their dick touched, just having their dick massaged. I am fine 
with hand jobs. I think if you went back to the record, I have recommended to couples in the situation where they've just had a baby and the, the woman who's breastfeeding and just pushed that baby out into the world isn't feeling like having intercourse. I have recommended hand jobs and assisted masturbation to couples in that position. But you gotta know going in that the odds are good after the baby comes that nobody but you, sir, is going to touch your dick for at least a little bit. And if you're not okay with that, don't have a fucking baby. Don't have a fucking baby. Don't do it. Don't do it. And if you do do it, know that your sex life is going to take a hit. And don't stew in resentment. And if a hand job is offered, accept it enthusiastically. Don't act like it's a sad and tragic consolation prize and that you've been wronged somehow as you're being jerked off by your exhausted wife. And you know what? You're likely to get more hand jobs if you accept those hand jobs that you're offered early on graciously and enthusiastically. And you're likely to get back to the kind of fucking you enjoyed before the baby came if you accept the hand jobs you are offered, if you're offered any graciously and enthusiastically. Hi, Dan. I'm a 30 something year old gay male. I have a quick question. I met this guy online about two months ago, and we have a lot in common. We seem to uh, like the same things, but I never thought the relationship would go beyond like texting and phone calls because he lives so far away. He lives in Boston, and I live far from Boston. So we've been talking every night since for about two months now, and he's really into feet. I am not, not even a little bit into feet. But when we would like send each other dirty pictures or when we had phone sex or with the with uh, video calls or whatever, I would pretend to be into it because I knew it turned him on and I, I wanted to get him off. My question is, was I wrong to pretend to be into feet to help to help him? Because now we want to meet in person when uh, when the COVID thing gets better, when we both get uh, the immunization. Was I wrong to pretend to be into feet for him? I know I got to tell him before he comes, but if I tell him this, I don't know how he's going to take it. Is that me being dishonest or how would you take it if someone did this? I'm not sure. In one way, you misled this guy. In another way, you didn't mislead this guy. You allowed him to assume because you were willing to send him pictures of your feet and engage in, you know, foot dirty talk with him during your online sex sessions that you were also a foot fetishist. And he was probably very excited to find somebody who shared his kink. Now that was misleading, but you didn't mislead him in that you are a GGG person, good giving in game that you are able to take pleasure in giving someone else pleasure. And while feet aren't your thing, you got off on how they, your feet, were getting him off. You're still capable of doing that. You're capable of doing that in person. Most foot fetishists wind up partnered with people who aren't themselves foot fetishists, but are more than willing, more than happy to allow their foot fetishist partner to go to town on their feet, to lick their feet, to play with their feet, or to jerk that guy. It's almost always a guy who has a foot fetish off with their feet because they're GGG. And it's not a chore. Sometimes somebody who really gets off on something that doesn't 
turn you off actively and doesn't traumatize you, getting that person off, doing that thing or allowing them to groove on that particular part of your body that gets them off that may be an atypical part of the body for somebody to groove on, that itself can provide a person like you with intense pleasure. Think of the power it gives you to get him off in this way and how little it requires of you. You know, his fetish isn't mummification or crucifixion. His fetish isn't watching somebody else drink his piss. His fetish is getting to play with your feet, getting to look at your feet, incorporating your feet, hopefully you're limber in a deft way during intercourse. You can do all that. Obviously, you feel a little uncomfortable about the assumption that you allowed him to make, that you are a fellow foot fetishist. So before he travels to see you, you should make it clear to him. You should have a little, I need to confess something. I really have gotten off on this. I've really enjoyed exploring feet as something erotic with you, but I'm not a foot fetishist myself. And then tell him what you are willing to do. Like if you're comfortable with him playing with your feet, like another guy might want to play with your tits or your pits, you should tell him that. And I hope that's the case, that you would be comfortable with him getting off on your feet, even if you don't get off on feet in the same way. And I would hope that him getting off on your feet in the way that he gets off on your feet would provide you with some erotic charge, some pleasure. Being able to derive pleasure from the pleasure that you provide someone else is a really important skill, a really important aspect of being a good and indulgent and GGG lover. Doesn't mean, again, people misconstrue this, doesn't mean you have to do things that you're uncomfortable with, doesn't mean you have to do things that traumatize you or leave you curled up in the fetal position on the bathroom floor afterwards sobbing. No, but if somebody gets off on something that doesn't turn you off, that you can, a place you can go and you can get off on getting them off, you can and should do that. We're going to take a quick break from your calls to place a call ourselves to Dr. Jen Gunter, author of The Vagina Bible. I recently took a call from a listener who was suffering from recurrent UTIs, urinary tract infections, and we got so many responses from so many other listeners with recommendations for that caller and other listeners who suffer from recurrent UTIs, and I wanted to bounce those recommendations off Dr. Jen Gunter. Hey, Dr. Jen, how you doing? I'm doing good, Dan. How are you? Good. Uh, one of the things I love about following you on uh, on Twitter and reading your stuff and reading the Vagina Bible is how you knock down bullshit quackery. You know, people getting, don't get coffee enemas, don't put jade eggs in your vagina, you don't need to do a vaginal steam or whatever that latest bullshit goop is pushing. Uh, and so I really wanted to, before we played a bunch of these responses, and in a sense, possibly endorsed what could be quackery around treating UTIs. I wanted to bounce them off you. Okay. So here we go. Quit alcohol. No. Alcohol is not going to give you bladder infections. But drink moderately. Quit eating chocolate. No. Do you not have to quit eating chocolate? Quit eating citrus. Uh, no. Quit drinking coffee. No. Use unlubricated condoms. No, no. Unlubricated condoms um, actually uh, can cause bladder infections. Switch up your brand of condoms. Possibly. Um, some, if you have a condom with spermicide, that actually can be linked with a bladder infection. Use water-based lube. Uh, no. Um, you know, different lubes are, have not been linked to bladder infections. Use what feels good. 
take extra vitamin C? No. We used to think that maybe vitamin C might um, acidify the urine to the point that makes it difficult for bacteria to grow, but we don't actually think that's true anymore. Avoid the missionary position. (laughs) No. It's fine. Drink lots of water, which is good advice just generally, but does drinking a lot of water help people avoid UTIs? No, no, it doesn't. All it does is make people pee more. Don't shave your pubes. Uh, You know, there's no specific link between pubic hair removal and bladder infections. Get an ozone bladder installation. I have no idea what that is, but somebody called it and recommended it. Dear God, never, ever do that, ever. What is that? So ozone is a toxic, harmful gas that the FDA says has no known health applications. And there are some providers, mostly naturopaths, that I've seen that offer it as some kind of therapy. And people should never do that. And why the FDA doesn't like, arrest those people, I don't understand. We only got one person recommending ozone bladder installation. <laughs> that makes me happy, uh, considering what I just <laughs> learned about it. But we got so many people, so many people called in to recommend taking D-mannos. What is D-mannos? It's a sugar, and we think that it, a type of sugar, and we think that it may inhibit how bacteria bind with the bladder tissue. And there's one well-done study that indicates that two grams of D-mannos a day was as effective as a daily antibiotic at preventing bladder infections. Oh, so this one is, this is for real. There's one study, but you know, there's always one study to begin with that shows something is effective. So this is for real because this was the one that many, many, many people recommended. Many people, many women who called in and said that they had suffered from recurrent bladder infections recommended D-Manos and said it had worked for them. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, this isn't like the highest quality evidence-based medicine, but there's definitely a good study and, and I recommend it to my patients. Do you need a prescription to get D-Manos or is it like a supplement? No, it's a supplement. And so that's the problem. It's available over the counter. And so inherent in that are the fact that sometimes supplements can be adulterated and and other types of things. So you just, you know, want to be mindful of the, the brand that you get. It's really clear from the overwhelming response that we got to this particular caller's question that urinary tract infections are something that a lot of women struggle with. Why isn't there more awareness of them? Why aren't there more effective treatments for them? If it's so common and it's so painful and distressing, why hasn't kind of big pharma rushed in and cranked out some really effective preventative treatment? You know, I, I don't think I know all the answers, but but certainly, I mean, between the ages of sort of 20 and, you know, sort of 60, about 2 to 4% of women will have a bladder infection a year. And then after menopause, the risk starts to increase due to lower levels of estrogen. And, you know, it's a fairly complex, I think, why people get recurrent bladder infections. And I think that we don't necessarily have a full understanding of that. You know, why, why Big Pharma hasn't jumped on it, I can't answer that question, but I'm sure it's probably a combination of women's health being underfunded and understudied, but also maybe partly the complexity of the problem. Mm-hmm. But um, I think one of the biggest issues with, with recurrent urinary tract infections is, you know, that there actually are things that can be done. They don't always work 100%, but they can help a lot. And I think that maybe there's a disconnect between providers listening to patients and, you know, hearing that they have the problem. 
I think also, too, because we have such a fractured healthcare system in the United States and people switch health insurances so frequently, they may not have that continuity of care they need to actually have a truly recurrent problem identified and then followed up. And so I think there's a variety of factors involved. So, so Dr. Jen Gunter, author of the Vagina Bible, you are endorsing the recommendation that so many of our listeners phoned in to take D-Manos, the dietary supplement. Yeah, it can be useful. But what I would say is the most important thing when someone has recurrent injections is to actually be seeing a doctor who can manage that. Because sometimes recurrent infections are due to a resistant bacteria, and that might need a different kind of treatment. So, you know, you want to make sure that that's what's really going on. We see some people who are who believe they have recurrent infections, and actually what they have is a condition called painful bladder syndrome that feels exactly like a bladder infection, but it isn't. And so they're actually being misdiagnosed. So you want to see someone who's familiar with that as well. It, it just kind of blows my mind. Like if a significant percentage of people with penises were suffering yearly on a yearly basis with something that made their penises burn uh, and made them very uncomfortable, made it possible to sleep, there would be more conversation about it. I mean, it's just more evidence of, you know, sexism, which sometimes it feels like we don't need more evidence of. It's just shot through the culture. But it seems like there would be more conversation about it, more recommendations, more potential treatments more awareness. It seems like millions of women are out there suffering with recurrent UTIs and don't know where to turn or what to do. I think there's so many layers of problems here. I mean, I think obviously misogyny and lack of studying things is a big part of the problem. I think then there's also the problem that people can't talk about women's health. You know, you talk about it, you can't talk about a vagina, you're dirty. You mm -hmm. know, if you're a person with a vagina, there's some, you know, you're inherently problematic. Then there's this old concepts of, you know, tying sexual activity with recurrent bladder infections. And there's that's certainly maybe a risk, but, you know, historically people have been looked upon as, as being bad for doing that. Right. So you have all these sort of cultural factors and then you have the medical complexity and the fact that we don't have a lot of good treatments. And then you also have a condition that's exactly like a bladder infection or feels exactly like a bladder infection, but isn't. And so many women who are suffering from what they think are recurrent infections could actually have this other condition. But if you don't have a doctor who's familiar with it, then that's problematic as well. So I think there's, it's one of these awful sort of meeting of like everything that's, you know, so many aspects of problematic things in medicine sort of combining in into sort of this, this one endpoint. And of course, slut shaming plays a part here because a lot of people come down with urinary tract infections after sex and have to be very careful after sex to, to pee and wash to avoid a urinary tract infection. So you can see people going to the doctor to complain about a urinary tract infection and a sex phobic, sex negative doctor, which are two terms that can be applied to too many doctors. Look at the patient, look at the woman and treat them like it's your fault. If you just wouldn't have sex, if you weren't having sex, this wouldn't be happening to you. Absolutely. Except emptying your bladder right after sex isn't supported by data. It's recommended everywhere. I know, but it's not supported by data. Wow. Is it the knock wood of, of avoiding urinary tract infections? Is it a superstition? It's not in the new guidelines. That's all I can tell you. So, um, and also this idea of, you know, of wiping from front to back, you know, very carefully or washing yourself after going to the bathroom. There's also no, no evidence that that's beneficial either. Just putting it out there. But a urinary tract infection often occurs when bacteria is introduced into the urinary 
uh, into the urethra, right? Well, I think it's a lot more complex than we think. So, you know, I, it's related to the vaginal microbiome. It's related to the bladder microbiome. It's related to overall health. And so, you know, because a lot of these things are related to microscopic bacterial colonies that we don't quite understand, you know, we've, we've traditionally had a very simplistic view of this, but, you know, the new guidelines for prevention of recurrent bladder infections, um, you know, don't, don't list um, emptying the bladder after sex. Okay, so your recommendations would be to go ahead and take D-mannose, but also go ahead and drink alcohol, eat chocolate, eat citrus, drink coffee, all in moderation, of course, all things in moderation. And if you have a UTI that is recurrent, to really go press your doctor to make sure you don't have this other condition, the symptoms of which mimic UTIs. Right. And I think that's why probably a lot of your listeners called in and mentioned alcohol and chocolate and citrus. Uh, and there was something else I can't remember. Coffee. Because all of those, coffee, because all of those things are bladder irritants, right? Mm -hmm. So if you have a condition, a painful, if you have painful bladder syndrome, your pain may get worse after having those things. Now, if you have a bladder infection, those things might make you feel worse because they're bladder irritants, but they're not going to cause an infection. Dr. Jen Gunter, author of The Vagina Bible. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone today. You are always the best and most valuable resource when it comes to things like this. Thank you so much. Hey, Dan. I'm a heteroflexible woman with a question about clit stimulation. I really like stimulation from grinding, and I do grind with my husband during foreplay. But then I lose that stimulation once we escalate to penetration. My husband and I have tried to find the right recipe of hand positions or toys that can still give my clit that general stimulation through the hood uh, feeling during penetration, but we've had limited success with replicating the feeling. Any suggestions? I feel like a little bit of a broken record on this issue. Watch some gay porn. That's always my recommendation for women who can climax, can get off with direct clitoral stimulation, but have a harder time climaxing during just penetrative sex. Watch some gay porn and then do what the gay bottom boys do. Masturbate while you're getting fucked. Whatever you do when you masturbate, do that thing with your husband while you're getting fucked. That means finding a way to get your grind on during penetrative sex. It sounds like you're trying to do that. You say you keep trying to find the right recipe, the right combo of penetrative sex with toys or penetrative sex with hand jive. I would also suggest you say you start with foreplay and it works for you during foreplay. You're getting the kind of stim you need during foreplay. And then when you escalate, when you move on to penetration, the main event, it doesn't work as well for you. Well, it seems to me sometimes you should not move on to penetration instead of thinking of whatever it is that you're doing during foreplay with your husband as the appetizer course before the main course that is always penetration. Sometimes just stay with the appetizer. Foreplay should be whatever you're doing during foreplay, the main event. It should be what you're doing that time. Have a couple of orgasms. And then if you are still in the mood for a little penetrative sex, maybe you move on every once in a while to penetrative sex after you've gotten off a couple of times. Women who are capable of having more than one orgasm in a session often find that second or third orgasm or fourth or fifth orgasm easier to achieve 
than the first. So maybe if you get the first out of the way, maybe not out of the way, maybe if you enjoy the first and really relax into the first and make it all about you and what works for you and what you know works for your clit, the grind that you need, and then every once in a while, maybe after you have that first orgasm, second orgasm, during a session that's going to center you, your body, your twat, your clit, your hood, what works for you, getting the grind on with the husband and he can jack himself off while this is all happening too every once in a while. If you feel like it, if you are still in it, then you can quote unquote escalate to penetration, but don't feel obligated. Relax and enjoy partnered sex with your husband doing what you're doing during foreplay that works. That's almost getting you there. And then don't shift gears. Don't pivot. Don't move on to penetration and lose your momentum toward your orgasm. Go have your orgasm. And then if you feel like doing some penetrative sex with the husband after that, go for it. If you don't feel like it, great. He can rub one out too. And I have another suggestion and a suspicion. I suspect that you're getting your grind on, whatever you do that works for you, you're doing during foreplay to get you going, to turn you on, to get you wet. And then you're escalating, pivoting, moving on to quote unquote the main event penetration. And what you're not able to do, what you haven't been able to achieve is simultaneous orgasms coming during penetrative sex. Maybe it's something that you want. Maybe it's something that your male partner is really invested in. And then he comes and you haven't come and he feels bad or you feel bad or you both feel sad. And then you stop. Yeah, no, don't put such importance on the simultaneous orgasm. If getting your grind on before penetrative sex, when you want to have penetrative sex, works for you, turns you on, gets you wet, gets you close, and then you move on to penetrative sex and it doesn't get you the rest of the way there. Well, after he comes, after he gets off through penetrative sex, you can pivot back. You can, well, I don't want to say de-escalate. You can continue to escalate, but escalate back. Go back to what was working before. Go from getting your grind on, getting worked up, getting spun up for the penetrative sex that you enjoy too, that he enjoys. After he comes... Go back to getting your grind on. Get yourself off with his hopefully cheerful and active participation after he has his orgasm. He can stay in the game, particularly if all you really need him for is a pressure point. If you're just going to grind on him, grind on his hopefully still hard dick maybe a little bit, grind on his face, his forehead, his leg, his knee, his thigh, his chest, whatever it is that you grind on that's his that works for you and gets you there – There's no rule that says you can't go from grind foreplay, penetrative sex, he gets off back to the grind, which is your main event at the end after he's gotten off. He's just got to stay in the game. He's got to be invested in your pleasure and getting you off even after he's had his one solo sad and tragic male orgasm. Hey, Dan. I'm a 42-year-old heteroflexible woman. Uh, I was calling to see what a delicate way of saying I don't want to date broke dudes would be on dating apps. I feel like I'm very disadvantaged in that men get to see that I'm fit. I have nice big boobs. You know, They get to see the things that they want to know about before meeting me, but I don't get to see his dick size or bank account. And those things are important to me. So what's a way of vocalizing some of these needs of women 
the last time I said on OkCupid that I was looking for generous men and my um, my account got banned. And it's I don't know how else to word that I'm not looking for broke broke dudes. I've only dated men that have made less money than me. And uh, it just is not something I'm interested in doing anymore. I had a follow-up question for you. I'd love to hear it. So are you looking for a rich guy? Are you in the market for a Donald Trump Jr.? Or are you just um, looking for a guy who can pay his fair share of the rent? Let me explain. I just got out of a marriage like two years ago where I married a guy I was dating like kind of prematurely trying to help him out, get him health insurance. And ended up like really screwing myself. Mm-hmm. So I ended up like 16000 in debt. And I've just always dated guys who maybe made around the same as me, but just couldn't save or weren't responsible with money. Mm-hmm. So I'm just looking, yeah, not necessarily rich, but like somebody who can support themselves, but also likes kind of the same level, I guess, of, of comfort that I do, which is not like, Donald Trump Jr. Because your call, the way the way your call crazy. came across, that's why I wanted to get you on the phone. It came across a little gold diggery, and you just want somebody yeah. who's got their financial house in order and has their shit together. I mean, yes, absolutely. But you know, also, I don't necessarily think being a gold digger is necessarily a bad thing, especially given the amount of work that women have to kind of shoulder in relationships. So. Not necessarily a gold digger, but like a woman looking for certain aspects in a man, I don't think that's necessarily wrong, right? If it's like that he can support himself, that he is a good provider, mm-hmm. if it's that he knows how to do his own laundry or, you know, different well, things. No, for different no, people. you know, if he's rich and providing, you should probably do his fucking laundry. Fair is fair. <laughs> exactly. Exactly, right? There's this old, you know, women are sex objects. We all understand that and, and we fight against it. You know, the, the and that's a burden on a lot of women. You know, a lot of women have eating yeah. disorders and, you know, are exhausted by only being seen as what they bring to the table physically and not as people. Uh, but men sometimes are burdened by this idea that they are success objects. You know, women are you know, they're pretty faces and they're I've tits. yet to meet one. Like, and, I would love to meet a success object. <laughs> and men are their bank <laughs> accounts. Guys who make less money than the women that they're dating can can feel judged or shamed or, like, failures or emasculated. And we live in a world now where women have, you know, more people who go to college now are, are women than are men, that, that women are seeing rapid kinds of career advances. And it can't be the case that... We live in a world, you know, which is increasingly more equitable around gender and and professional success and income. Not perfect, not all the way there yet, but increasingly. But also live in a world where all women want to date men who are more successful than they are, who make more money than they do. Because we've rejiggered the the sexism that created a world where all women made less money than all men – so that there are more women right. who some make more money than many men. And, you know, a woman who isn't interested in dating men who have less money than they do or less professional success than they do is going to be looking to a much smaller and increasingly smaller and smaller pool of potential male partners. So it incurred, you know, I, I understand you've just gotten out of a, a bad marriage with somebody who saddled you with debt. Everybody needs to understand when you marry someone, their debts become your debts. Yeah. And, you know, marrying someone who's financially irresponsible as opposed to just living with that person can really fuck your life up 
in a way that you might not understand before you marry them. If you don't understand that their debts become your debts, I can understand not wanting to do that again. But if you make a decent living, if you make enough money and there's some guy out there that you dig who you really like, who's not a basket case, who's not a mask, who doesn't have a lot of debts, who's not irresponsible, I don't know why you wouldn't want to date that guy necessarily. I would definitely want to date that guy. I'm just dying to find him. <laughs> I mean, I can't be. Look, I, I don't know. I don't know how much this has to do with like history repeating itself. But my mother, you know, I kind of watched her support my father. Mm-hmm. So, you know, could it be that I just have poor examples of people um, receiving, you know, their Maybe. Uh, who knows? How, how, how do we figure, you know, do, does somebody emit a kind of pheromone if they, that, that attracts people who then repeat the patterns that they witnessed growing up? Uh, I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think there's probably more coincidence at work here. And maybe, you know, the social arenas through which you move where financial success or career success may be less important or less valued or have less social capital. And so you're just interacting with more guys who have chosen a different path in life or been had a different path in life imposed on them than one that brought a lot of professional or financial success. So maybe you need to get out there and be at different places. It's so weird because I was a software engineer. I, I, I quit, you know, a couple years ago, but like, yeah, like I could have been in an industry that I was surrounded by more, men who were kind of just like me but were, were you were you were you attracted to those guys any of those guys? oh yeah sure I, I guess i i think i'm a little bit intimidating because i'm pretty and smart and successful and I, well you being pretty and smart and successful is going to drive off a certain kind of guy and the, the guys it drives off are guys you wouldn't want to be with because you don't want to become unsuccessful unsmart unpretty to keep the insecure guy or maybe i'm not as great as i think i am and i'm just like why don't they like me listening to your call you said you know guys get on a dating app and they know everything about you if you're a woman because they can see your face they can see your boobs as if that's all a woman is is face and boobs whereas you see their photo and you don't know anything about their dick or their bank account those were the things that you you held up as comparable uh, you know, traits in, in the you know opposite sex dating market. My tits, my face, your dick, your checking account balance. But, yeah, I mean, but that's me in particular. You know, like those are my assets, right? And that's like two things that are currently important to me. And important to many men. Like a lot of men are out there looking for, for pretty women with nice tits. Right. Like, I, I yeah, I definitely, uh, you know, took that down to a, a level that it shouldn't have been um, reduced to, but it reduced yourself down to a level you shouldn't have been reduced to. And, and men as well, and men as well. Right. The, the yeah. paradox for you here, and I think I think the only course of action for you going forward is to just date a lot of guys. And if you think that you guys don't ask you out because you're intimidating, then okay, you're going to have to ask guys out, and then you're going to have to just like research them. You're going to have to see what their dick is like when you get to that point where you get to see their dick. And if the dick is qualifying, if it meets your standards, you can keep dating them. If not, they're out. And then, you know, eventually you'll get an impression about their finances. And as we do, you know, people tend to disclose this information a little later in dating. You're just going to have to do, I like to call it your screw diligence. And as frustrating and protracted as that process can be. And, you know, the more deal breakers you have, the more protracted and frustrated that process can become. 
there's no way of avoiding it. Because even guys with big dicks and big bank balances, if you go to them and say, I'm only interested in guys with big dicks and big bank balances, guys with big dicks and big bank balances who are not shallow pieces of shit are going to be repulsed by that. I'm really an either or kind of gal. I'll take one or the other is fine. <laughs> right, but you can see you can see the trap there for you because <laughs> I know if, what you're it, saying though. I know what you're saying. If you hang up if you put if you if you if you put up a flag that says only big dick, big bank balance guys need apply, a lot of big dick, big yeah. bank balance guys are gonna walk right by that and not apply. Because they're gonna make assumptions about you that are unattractive and unappealing emotionally, even if, you know, as an object, you're very appealing. They will find that emotionally a turnoff. So you're in a trap where you just have to date and, and, and refrain from marrying guys with debt I'm problems who need health insurance. In situation. Yes, you're halfway the asshole. Some people probably listen to your call and thought you were the entirely the asshole. I don't think you're entirely the asshole. Oh, I hope not. Well, I guess they don't know me personally. I'm sure to a plenty of people I I come across as a total asshole, but they don't know my story. Some people find that attractive. I think it's perfectly reasonable to like have a preference around dick size. So long as you don't make people who aren't, who don't have what you're looking for, feel bad. It's not that they lack. It's that they don't have what you're looking for. I guess it's a kind of lacking, but what they have may be perfect for somebody else. It's just not what you wanted. I don't even know why I said a big dick. Cause like I love little dicks. Too. <laughs> I really do. <laughs> I don't know why, you know, they're actually easier to orgasm with, mm. in my opinion. It's the grind, you know, it's the external it's less confusing. clitoral it's glands less like- that's important, not yeah. the like hitting the <laughs> cervix that's important to, to getting a woman off. So if a guy's got a medium or small dick, but is really good at the grind, he can still get you there. If a guy has a giant dick and doesn't know what he's fucking doing and has never met a clitoris, he's not going to get you there. So... Date. Yeah. Keep dating. You're right. All right. I will date. Dating is a discovery process. If you discover that there are disqualifiers and you don't want to continue dating the guy, then you just shut it down and you stop dating them. That is not something that you're doing wrong. It's not mistreating somebody if you date and then discover things that make them not somebody who you want to date for the long term. Then you label it a successful short-term relationship and you end it and move on. And continue to date people and you find somebody, if what you want is an LTR, who's LTR potential. You don't want to have too many deal breakers. Oh, my standards are like, no, like I, I'm, they're so low that it's like, really, I, it's like, just give me like a couple of things, just something to work with. A gainfully employed vertebrate with a dick. Like, you know, I'll take like a drug problem or bad habits if like you really love me and you're loyal and you can support yourself i'll take you know a tiny penis and somebody who maybe sexually isn't uh, on the same page as me if they love watching me get fucked by other men (laughs) oh my god put that out there put that out there there are a lot of wealthy guys (laughs) who are into cuckolding (laughs) I really do think that if you're turned on by the idea of somebody else fucking you in front of your partner, that there are, you are a scarce resource. There are a lot more guys out there who want to be in cuckold relationships than there are women who can, who are interested, who have even heard of cuckold relationships. That is something that you should play to your advantage. That is something that you should lead with. So lead with my kinks. Lead. Oh my God. Yes, absolutely. Lead with your kinks (laughs) and then find yourself a big dick, well off guy 
who wants to watch <laughs> you get fucked by big dick broke guys. They're out there. <laughs> Jerry Falwell Jr. might be single next year. Who knows? You're awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks for all that you do. Bye. Bye. Hi, Dan. I am a queer woman in her early 20s. I want to talk about sexuality for a second. So I recently came to my queerness towards the end of last year when I saw a relationship with a non-binary person and um, it didn't it didn't work out for um, other reasons. And But after the relationship, I kind of realized how much I do want to pursue people who've, who've lived their life as a woman at some point um, or who identify as women. But it's kind of made me realize how much I don't like men. I do find men attractive, but I just feel like the idea of being with a man is just very exhausting. To kind of preface this, I've always had a hard time with men in my life. I mean, I'm at, I'm at a great relationship with my dad, but I don't, I've never been able to kind of cultivate a positive and healthy relationship with a man, whether it's romantic or platonic. And even, and even when I am in a relationship, I have always found myself being really negative, being really like, um, just getting annoyed really easily and just always kind of having um, some kind of issue with them. So while I am very much comfortable pursuing women and, or gender non-conforming people, part of me wants to in a way ensure that me going for these kind of people is genuine well i feel it's genuine but i don't know if someone else can relate you know when when it's at this point realizing sexuality where they're realizing that they're into a same or similar sex that it doesn't come off as like oh i'm only i'm only pursuing woman because my relationship my my past with men and i i so i kind of want to find that point where i am pursuing a woman or they're not conforming people or trans people in a genuine way and not just as a reactionary way to kind of avoid being with a man if that makes sense welcome new listener if you're more attracted to women at this stage of your life if you feel more comfortable if you feel safer emotionally and physically with women by all means get out there and pursue women or people who've lived their lives as women at some point. We'll be drawing partners in the future from the PWLTAAWASP community. And that's great. And I encourage you to, now that you know this about yourself, now that you know that women are a possibility for you and maybe even a better, not choice, I don't think sexual orientation desire is a choice, but it sounds like you are bisexual. You are attracted to men and in the past pursued exclusively men before this most recent relationship. You're also physically attracted to women. And what you may have discovered about yourself is that you're more emotionally attracted to women. You are, as they say, bisexual, but homoromantic, attracted to people on all points of the gender spectrum, but emotionally attracted to members perhaps of your same sex or your same gender. And when you look back over your history with men, over these relationships where you were really negative and easily annoyed and you picked or found fault, there's two ways to sort of reverse engineer that and understand that. It could be that men were never right for you and you couldn't articulate why. You didn't understand why. You hadn't yet come into a full understanding of yourself as a bisexual but homoromantic person. And so you were in relationships with men 
because that was what was expected of you. And that's what you had been trained to believe that you wanted. And so you went and got it. And then when you got it, it wasn't what you wanted and you couldn't understand why. And you wanted out. You wanted that relationship to end because it wasn't making you happy for reasons you could not yet articulate. So you would find fault. You would become easily annoyed. You would, in a sense, slam your hand down on the eject button because you wanted out, because this was not right for you and you didn't understand yet just how it wasn't right for you or why it wasn't right for you. That said, it sounds like you have a traumatic history with male people, not a great relationship with your dad. Maybe you've had some shitty relationships, maybe like a lot of women or people who've lived their lives at some point as women out there, you have been targeted by shitty men. And it may be absent those negative experiences, you would have been bisexual and biromantic. But so much trauma and pain in your life is associated with male or male identifying people that men just shit the bed. You can't deal. You can't deal with men. And it may seem unfair to, you know, the good guys out there that they won't have the opportunity to date you because bad guys got to you first, but they'll just have to eat it. And if you feel more comfortable in a relationship with a woman, which is not to say that there aren't some deeply shitty and abusive women out there, there are. But if you feel more comfortable with women, you're less likely to pick and find fault and feel negative and want out, then pursue women. Women may be the right choice for you now, the right romantic and sexual partners for you now for the next five years, 10 years, or maybe for the rest of your life. If it makes you happy, if you feel safe and comfortable, if with someone who is a woman or a person who has lived their lives as a woman at some point, you're able to relax and enjoy and process the negative feelings that are still going to come and work through the annoyances that are still going to be a part of any long-term relationship, go for it and understand yourself as a perfectly valid kind of queer, the bisexual but homoromantic queer. There are lots of them out there. You are one of them, it would seem. Welcome to your understanding of queerness and welcome to the queer community. Hi, Dan. I am a 28-year-old cis straight male from New England. I have been in a committed relationship with a married woman for the last two months. This is with the full knowledge and consent of her husband, who I actually met first. The three of us have been attempting to create a polyamorous V. The husband has an untreated mental health issue that has been causing problems for them uh, before any of this happened. My partner and I haven't been physically seeing each other for much of this, as the husband has been trying to catch up, so to speak, and it's been very hard on him. And on all of us. Two days ago, when the three of us decided that it would be okay for my partner and I to see each other, the husband changed his mind afterwards and decided that he is not capable of polyamory at this moment in time and for the foreseeable future. My partner is now deciding with her husband whether they are going to stay together based on their own compatibility. My partner and I have come to the conclusion that 
we still love each other and nothing has changed between us and we are still communicating. But my question, Dan, is what is the right thing to do? Is there a way that my partner and I can still be in love in this situation? Is there a way to ethically support my partner while she goes through this process without interfering or unconsciously affecting the outcome? We both feel that it is right to love one another and continue to do that. Oh my God, if you said my partner and I one more time, I was going to blow a fucking gasket. It's only been two months. You don't know this woman. It doesn't sound like you've been in this woman's presence more than once or twice. I think people can meet on the internet. I didn't used to think people could meet on the internet and fall in love or develop a deep and meaningful tie. I now believe that is possible. I don't think that is possible in two fucking months. And I think you are rounding things up in an unreasonable way when you describe this relationship as a partnership. It doesn't sound like you've been in this woman's presence more than once or twice. And it sounds frankly like she and her husband are playing fucking games, don't know what they want and have used you have drawn you into a relationship or ha- or convinced you to open yourself up to the possibility of a relationship and made you feel things that are, and now set you up to be hurt because they weren't in a place where either of them, frankly, sounds like they were in good enough working order to be in a relationship with each other, much less create a polyamorous V triad relationship with some unsuspecting guy they found on the fucking internet. So you ask, what do I do? What do I do here? How, how do I behave ethically? Well, the first thing that you need to do is back way the fuck up and, and protect yourself and be reasonable. You have a crush on this woman. I am not discounting the intensity of your feelings for her or your attraction to her. It is not yet a partnership. You do not yet know for sure if your crush, which is essentially a hunch, is correct and that you do or will at some point really love her, fall in love with her. A crush is like, hey, I could really fall in love with this person. We often have crushes on people who turn out to be deeply shitty people the more we get to know about them and our crush hunch was wrong. That's what dating and not rushing into commitments is all about. And you have essentially allowed yourself to rush into an emotional commitment to this woman while you're still in the crush stage, before you've even spent any significant amount of time physically with her in her presence. What if you don't like the taste of her spit? You don't even probably know what her spit tastes like yet. Back the fuck up. And climbing off that ledge, say to yourself, I have a crush on this person. If she is available to me emotionally and sexually, post-pandemic, we can get together more There may be something real and lasting here. I may be able to fall in love with this person. I am not yet in love with this person, and this is not yet a partnership. But a partnership is possible at some point in the future. Partnership isn't possible, however, if her husband doesn't consent to a polyamorous relationship, if her husband has untreated mental health issues that make it impossible for them to be in good enough working order to initiate relationships with third parties, you. So... What do you do ethically about the situation so you don't feel like you're manipulating her? Well, you tell her to give you a call once this is all sorted out. You thank her 
her time. You tell her this is really hard for you to end this, but you're going to end it for now because there's no space in their marriage. There's no space in her life for you if her husband doesn't consent to opening up their marriage, to moving into polyamory. How is there any space in her life for you in an ethical way if her husband doesn't consent to the relationship? There isn't. So if you want to be ethical, you're going to have to end it. You ending it. And this is where sometimes people have a problem with this kind of like I'm calling it thing. In a circumstance like this, she may feel pressured to end a relationship with her husband if she wants to keep you in her life or in her email inbox or in her DMs or whatever. That's not you being manipulative. That's not you trying to leverage her out of her marriage so that she can have you. That's just the circumstance as it exists. That's just a choice that she's going to have to make. If it's you or her husband, and that's an ultimatum her husband has laid down, well, that's a choice that she has to make. And you aren't obligated to stay in the relationship or to sneak around with her and do that unethical thing to prevent that choice from seeming as stark as it actually is. All right? So, and this relationship, tell her once they get their shit together, if you're still single, which you're not going to promise her you will be, and she circles back to you, and you can have an above-board, honest, ethically non-monogamous relationship with her that you can form an ethical poly triad with the consent of her husband, you are still open to that, or you will still be open to that if you are still single when she circles back to you, but make no promises. Hi, Dan. 28-year-old bi woman on the East Coast. I've been dating my girlfriend for a year, and obviously most of that has been the pandemic. We very rarely have sex because she has past trauma from a relationship that makes any physical intimacy hard when she's feeling triggered. And obviously, we've both been super stressed out since March, so neither of us have been finding good ways to cope with her trauma and make her feel safe enough to feel sexual again. She's been okay with me going on dating apps and sexting with other people, but meeting up with people in person has felt too difficult, both emotionally and logistically, in COVID. Dan, as time goes on, I'm feeling more and more distant from her, and I'm afraid we're never going to get back to the great chemistry we had when we started dating. I also just want to fuck so badly, and while sexting helps, I don't think it will work for much longer. My girlfriend is incredible, and she adds so much to my life, but this is clearly taking a toll on our relationship, and we seem to constantly be bickering about something stupid. Is there any hope? At what point do I just admit that this relationship isn't meeting my needs? You're bickering about little things. You're bickering about dumb things because you can't bicker. You don't feel like you should complain about the big thing, which is there's no sex in this relationship and you are horny and frustrated and sad and you want out. It's clear that you want out of this relationship. It seems really clear that you're asking me for my permission to end this relationship because the sex isn't working and you don't feel like you can or you don't feel like you could or should end it over sex because the reason the sex isn't working is that your girlfriend has trauma from a past sexual relationship that makes it difficult for her to be intimate, to be sexual, to feel safe enough to be sexual with you. And yeah, that does put you in a really awkward position. You don't want to feel like you're abandoning someone when the problem is outside of their control, when you ending the relationship over that thing 
over the consequence of that trauma feels like you're in a sense re-traumatizing them or abandoning them or punishing them for having that trauma. But are you supposed to stay in this relationship for the next 30 or 40 years with the sex not working, bickering about the small things? And it's the bickering about small things that I think really is the sign you need to end this relationship because that's just perhaps your subconscious mind picking fights about the things you feel you can fight about because you can't fight about the thing that you want to fight about. And eventually those conflicts over the little things are going to grow and grow and grow. You're going to pour gasoline on them and burn the relationship down because you want out for this other reason. And rather than exiting the relationship now in a loving and compassionate way, you're going to escalate over time. You're going to continue to pour gasoline on something you feel you can fight about, something you feel you can confront her about, because you can't confront her about sex, which is really the issue for you here. And it's possible that the trauma isn't the issue. Maybe the relationship ran its course. That intensity that you experienced with her at the beginning and that you miss, sometimes that happens without trauma, without pandemics. Sometimes the intensity drains away. And what you learn the longer you're with someone is that you're better friends than lovers or you were meant to be friends and not lovers. I think that is often the case in a lot of same-sex relationships is that sometimes that pull that you feel towards somebody, that really strong connection you feel towards somebody for friendship can be perhaps if you're gay, lesbian, or bi misunderstood as an erotic pull. And only after sort of being in a sexual relationship with someone for a while does it sort itself out. Does it does it become apparent that the draw there was friendship? This is a cliche about a lot of same-sex relationships involving women, that really strong friendships are the end result of those relationships and may have been what the relationship was about from the start, a really passionate friendship. So I guess I'm trying to let you off the hook just a little bit here, that this relationship could be where it's at now, even if your girlfriend didn't have this trauma, the sex could still have fallen away. Your relationship could be where it's at now, even if we weren't living in COVID time. But either way, whatever it is, your needs aren't being met in this relationship and you want out. And you called seeking my permission to get out to end this relationship. And you have it. Hey, Dan, Nancy, and the tech savvy at risk youth. I'm a 37 year old married woman and I am having such a hard time being uh, attracted to my husband anymore. To give some background, when we first met, I thought that he was so hot that he was out of my league and wouldn't even be interested in me. And now a few years later, we're married. Obviously we live together and it's really difficult for me to look at him with like attraction or lust. And uh, I think it's just, uh, I have such a hard time living with people. I don't have a ton of experience with it. I lived with a boyfriend in college and it was terrible. And so I always told myself that I wouldn't, live with anybody else romantically uh, unless I knew it was going to lead to marriage. So he's only the second guy I've ever lived with. And I have such a hard time with that and kind of thought that I always would. People are disgusting. <laughs> and I don't know how people live together and find each other attractive. Because when you live with somebody, you see all of their grossest traits and most annoying traits on a daily basis. 
So, you know, I go to bed every night next to my attractive husband, but who is suffocating me and farts all night. And I don't know how to look at him lustfully after that. People obviously do this. Millions of people find a way to live with one another. I don't really understand how we aren't all living like Frida Kahlo and Diego Rivera did with two separate houses connected by a bridge. How do people do it? How do you see as somebody's grossest habits every single day and still want to have sex with them? Most people can compartmentalize this shit. There's the ass your partner has when your partner's farting and it's not an ass that smells very good. And then there's the ass your partner has when your partner is sitting on your face and it's somehow suddenly an ass that tastes amazing. And people at that moment, when the ass is coming down on their face, just don't think about, don't dwell on what their partner's ass was doing the night before after they had a lot of hummus at dinner. You're not capable, it seems, of making those kinds of distinctions, that kind of compartmentalization, really seeing that your partner has two butts, the butt that you enjoy and the butt that serves some utilitarian purposes in his life, in the functioning of his digestive tract. Seems to me that this is a problem with you, not a problem with most other people, the overwhelming majority of other people who are able to witness their partner's grossest habits and then not be plagued by those sense memories, those visual memories, the the awareness of their partner's gross habits when they're enjoying their partner's bodies, when they're getting into a groove, when they're feeling attracted to them. You are probably not attracted. No one's attracted to their partner when their partner is blowing their nose or picking their nose or passing gas, except of course, some people are attracted to people who pick their nose. Some people are attracted to snot. Some people are attracted to farts. Those people are out there. Most people aren't. But those who aren't, the overwhelming majority of people aren't paralyzed by the awareness that this ass that they're eating is also the ass that sometimes stanks up the bedroom. So what do you do? Well, maybe you see a shrink. Maybe this is something that you could uh, work on. Or maybe you accept that this thing about yourself that you know about yourself is true and perhaps unchanging and you make the obvious adjustment in your life that will allow you to have a partner and also have the kind of distance that you need from someone to sustain sexual interest in them. I always think, and I've talked on the show before about a couple that I knew decades ago. I was in France. I was staying with my then boyfriend in a rented room in an apartment. And the guy who owned the apartment was married and had a kid and his wife and kid lived in another apartment in the same building And they spent a lot of time together, but they had their own spaces. And I was fascinated by this. And I spoke with the guy about it. I spoke with her about it. I was a nosy motherfucker even then before I sort of had a license because of my profession or my quote unquote profession to ask people a lot of prying invasive questions. And it really was important to them, not just their sanity, but also for their sexual desire for each other to have that distance. Esther Perel talks about that distance And finding ways in a committed romantic relationship with your lives being entwined and being very casually intimate to sustain that distance that really desire bridges, that really creates and and, and inspires 
desires. Some people can do that, living under the same roof, maybe having separate nights out with friends, maybe having their own hobbies and pursuits, maybe by having other sex partners and then coming home to each other and there is a gap there. There is a distance to be bridged by desire to, for that couple to come back together. Well, for you, caller, that distance may have to be physical. You may need a separate households. You may, like that French couple I knew decades ago, need an apartment of your own in a building where your husband has an apartment of his own. Would have been great. Would have been preferable for you to unpack this with your partner before you married and moved in with him, hoping what had always been a problem somehow wouldn't be a problem with and for him, but it is a problem with and for him. And barring a lot of work with a shrink, it's probably going to stay a problem. You're going to have to go to your husband and say, look, you're going to have to pick your poison. We either have separate households, maybe very close together, and fuck a lot, or we live together under the same roof and I inhale your farts all night long and I don't want to fuck you at all. Pick. Before we get to your response calls, your comments, your feedback for me, your advice for each other, let's read some of your tweets. Jeremy Spreadham's XX69 tweets, the success story about the friend who allowed his bestie to come on the back of his motorcycle eight times. Now that is a true friend. Where can I find a friend like that? Well, in my experience, Jeremy, the best way to find friends like that is to be a friend like that. Session Spectator tweets, is there any higher honor than being asked by Dan Savage whether you're up for taking another call? Well, session before Trump, maybe the Presidential Medal of Freedom. After Trump, there is no higher honor. And finally, Michael Gerber tweets, ball tase truther is the funniest 2.5 words ever. I want that on a t-shirt at Fake Dan Savage. Well, Michael, we will get our merch team right on that. And to the handful of folks out there who emailed me after listening to last week's show to say a man is dead. Yes, I know. But ball tase truthers are not to blame. The dude who died of a heart attack at the Capitol after accidentally tasering himself in the balls during the insurrection, he's already dead and he's not going to get any deader. And unlike climate change denial or believing COVID is a hoax, ball tase trutherism isn't going to get anybody killed. Hell, if my legions of ball tase truthers can persuade just one idiot not to tuck a taser into his pants before leaving the house, whether he's committing treason or just out for a bike ride, ball tase trutherdom could save a life. Okay, if you want me to read your tweet on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, please be sure to include the hashtag Savage Lovecast and now your response calls. Hey Dan, this is a response call for 743, the gentleman who participated in the vaccine trial and is now having guilty feelings about the opportunity to get the vaccine early. First of all, thank you. And Dan, I agree with everything you said, but the caller gave the example of getting the vaccine now and taking it from someone who really needs it and they get sick. I want to offer to flip that logic for you. What if you pass up the opportunity to get the vaccine now and maybe you don't have antibodies because you got the placebo in the trial and you have to wait to get vaccinated. And in that time, you get COVID and you give it to someone else who gets sick. It's the same logical fallacy. I know there's a lot we don't know about the vaccine. Transmission might still be possible even after you're vaccinated, wear a mask, social distance, all that. Um, and it's wonderful that you are thinking about your privilege in this situation and equity. But we cannot let the perfect be the enemy of the good right now. Please get the vaccine as soon as it is offered to you in a legitimate way. Hey, Dan. Episode 743, you talked to a man 
who was having libido issues with his woman. I'm married to a woman who's 30 years younger than I am, and I'm 70. She has a much higher libido than I do. However, I satisfy her every day by giving her orgasms with my fingers, with a vibrator, or with my tongue. I only need to ejaculate once a month or so. So the bottom line is, the women ain't happy, nobody's going to be happy. You need to make sure that she's happy if you want to continue the relationship. And the penis is not the only orgasm that can make a woman happy. I am calling about the woman who had uh, the issue with her husband uh, who had P.E., Well, I guess all of them. I've been listening for a long time. And every time you give advice about PE, Dan, I love it. But there's always one thing that's missing. I was with a partner for about 10 years who had a pretty severe issue with PE. And the thing that is always lost on me is you can come more than once. Sure, as you get older, the refractory period is longer. But you used to like get in the shower and get them off really quickly. And I felt like an empowered goddess because I could make him come very quickly. And then we'd kind of like get, you know, move back to bed and he could work on me until he got aroused again. And then we could fuck like proper people and I could rub my clit and we could come and everything would be great. So just a word of advice, come more than once. I promise it's worth it. And we're going to leave it there. Got a question or a comment about this week's show? There are two ways to get them to us. You can call us at 206-302-2064, or you can use the Voice Memo app on your phone to record your question or comment and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. The Hump 2021 Film Festival opens this weekend. We have got 23 great short films to share with you. An amazing mix of straight, gay, les, trans, kink, vanilla, everything in between, and some things you've definitely never seen on film before. I'm hosting a special Zoom viewing party this Saturday night, January 30th, so you can watch the show along with me on opening night to see the trailer, to read about the lineup, and to grab your tickets for this Saturday's show or another Hump screening. Go to humpfilmfest.com Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Dr. Jen Gunter on Twitter at Dr. Jen Gunter. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week with an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for downloading.